Welcome to the Earth Keepers podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the Earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind, people who believe that Earth care should be integrated into every aspect of life, and for many in the Earth Keepers community, that includes our spiritual practices. In this episode, we'll be talking with Jeff Johnson, an acclaimed musician whose art spans a diversity of styles, including progressive rock, jazz, new age, and contemplative worship. Jeff has written music for a Martin Scorsese film, collaborated with great musicians like Phil Keggy, and recorded original music for the Wyndham Hill label. In our conversation today, we'll ask Jeff to share about some of the deep values behind his musical aesthetic, and in particular consider how themes of Celtic spirituality and communion with nature are reflected in his work. Of course, the best way to understand his art is to hear it, and in our conversation today, Jeff includes a few of his compositions. Welcome, friends, to the Earthkeepers Podcast. Well, hey, friends, welcome to the Earthkeepers Podcast. Today, we have a special guest, Jeff Johnson, and he is going to share with us about his music, among other things. But welcome, Jeff, to the podcast. Maybe you could orient our listeners a bit by telling us what it is you do day to day. Well, I try to be a musician. I've been doing that for about almost 50 years. Every day is a little different, but typically on a good day, I'll get a little bit of time in my studio. I've got my home studio here and I'll be working on on some project or practicing for a performance. Uh, those performances, remember those after a year ago? You know, amongst other things, very early on in my career, I started my own record company. And so all of my music has been initially released on that label called ARK Music, A-R-K Music. And then we've licensed the music to other labels like Wyndham Hill and Hearts of Space and Sony and, and Sparrow, labels like that. But, but I'm saying all that because there's quite a bit of work to manage that as well. Just kind of keeping that going. And yeah, so I've always been a bit of a do-it-yourselfer. Early on, I had my own recording studio in my home, and that was kind of unusual back then, but that's now kind of par for the course for most young musicians. I have a question about ARC Music. Do you also record other artists? No, I don't. I used to, I used to, but my music features a lot of other artists. I mean, I'm a very collaborative sort, and so I've been fortunate to work with many wonderful artists over the years, but they've been featured on my recordings or in collaborative recordings. For instance... The Irish flute player Brian Dunning from Dublin, the guitarist Phil Kagey. There's a wonderful classical singer that I've worked with a lot, Janet Marie Schwatal, who's an American based in Germany. All of these people have been regular collaborators and regularly featured on my my recordings. Now, speaking of collaboration, I should point out that there are some connections that we have that go beyond this podcast. First of all, where is your studio? Where are you recording from? Well, I have, for the last 21 years, lived on Camano Island, Washington, originally from uh, Portland, grew up outside of Portland in a place called Tigard, Oregon. So yeah, for for 21 years, I've been here on Camano, and I believe that's where you and I first made our connection. That's right. And to remind listeners, the parent organization of this podcast, Circlewood, owns 40 acres of uh, forested land on Camano Island, and we are in the process of developing that into a to an education center. So stay tuned on that front. You also, Jeff, have connections to 
the organization that preceded Circlewood, Mustard Seed Associates. Right. Christine and Tom, I met years and years ago, and they're friends, good friends. Unfortunately, I don't get a chance to see them that much, but that was the connection with Mustard Seed. Yeah. So let me ask you about your music a bit. If you could describe the sort of music you do, and maybe even the intentions of your music, how would you talk about that? That's a really difficult question for me to answer. I have probably around 50 recordings now, and they're quite varied depending on what age you are listening, or I should say what age I made them at. And my earlier recordings tended to be singer-songwriter, but very influenced by literature that I had read. And there were always vocal, but also instrumental passages. And eventually those instrumental passages as labels like Wyndham Hill became popular, those spawned into all instrumental recordings. And so I did, I've done a number of recordings with jazz bassist David Friesen back in the late 80s. And uh, then, as I mentioned already, Brian Dunning, who I met in the very late 80s, and we started collaborating. Brian was in a a band called Night Noise. They were based in Portland. That's about the same time I, I started, I met the author, Stephen Lawhead, And uh, Stephen and Alice are really, really good friends of Susie's and mine. And Brian and I started making music that was inspired by Stephen, some of Stephen's books back then. As time has gone on, I met this wonderful guitarist named Phil Kage, and Phil and I have done a number of instrumental recordings. And then, of course, as I alluded, Brian and I have done a lot of Celtic, contemporary Celtic music. And, And that's probably where most people out there have heard our music. We were on all the uh, Celtic Christmas records that Wyndham Hill put out and the Winter Solstice records. And we had tracks featured in movies like Scorsese's Gangs of New York. So a lot of people have heard that music. And more recently, people have heard the four collaborations with Phil. But I've continued along the way to, particularly as I started leading a contemplative worship service that I called Sila, and that began back in 2000. And that has spawned a whole kind of series of sacred music that is both vocal and instrumental that I often use in that service. And so there are a number of vocal albums that are very contemplative in nature and very inspired by, amongst other Christian traditions, a Celtic tradition. So that's kind of, I mean, you know, there's been children's albums, there's been other things too, but, but those kind of are the major streams. Well, your your music actually touches lots of different areas, lots of different lives, lots of different philosophies. And I think it's what I love about your music is it's so integrated with life. You know, it's not, it doesn't stand alone, but there's, there's always connections between your music and the world we live in. I do want to know more about the SELA services. I've been to them actually, and have found them quite moving. And I wonder what it's like for you to lead a SELA service. Are they performances for you? Are they experiences of entering into what you're leading the the listeners into? Talk more about that. Well, it's really both to answer, you know, honestly. Obviously, when a person is performing or facilitating, in this case, uh, and leading people in worship, one needs to have a certain competency and a certain preparedness so that they don't distract people from worship. So I spend actually a lot of time, I spend the same amount of time practicing and preparing for a SELA service as I would for a concert, a Celtic Christmas concert. 
And then, of course, there's a whole nother preparation and just the programming and the sequencing of a CELA. CELA service, just to just to be clear, is is really kind of my take. For those of you who know Teze, it's kind of my take on a Teze service in that, in this case, there are hymns, there are original pieces of music of mine, there are choruses from Teze, from uh, the Iona community, from friends I know, there's instrumental passages, there's always a reading from the Psalms, there's often a reading from the Gospel, there are maybe a prayer or two from either the Celtic tradition or from the Roman Catholic tradition, the Orthodox tradition. I kind of borrow from lots of different uh, traditions and all kind of woven into this one hour service that features a period of 10 minutes of silent prayer about two thirds of the way through it. That's what a Sila service is. Sila being the word in the Psalms to pause, maybe a musical phrase to rest. So anyway, to get back to your question, it really just depends. Sometimes I've given, I'm given the gift of really just being able to feel like I'm just part of the congregation that I'm, I'm leading. Other times I'm distracted enough or, or whatever. I don't know what it is, but whereas it, 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 it's harder. It works more like a performance. And I always view myself very much as really just a participant, even though I'm facilitating. But I, I try to be as undistracting as I can be. Because there's lots of silence in a seal service. I've always viewed it as I'm kind of setting up, I'm setting this table, this banquet table of food that when that time of silent prayer comes, people can come and take what they want. I've always kind of viewed it as a, as a meal, so to speak. Yeah, I love that metaphor. I'm wondering if you could maybe give us a taste of what a seal service would be like. Well, I'll tell you, I start always a seal service by ringing a handbell three times. Why don't I just do that? I'll ring this bell three times and then I'll, I'll sing a chant here. So what I'd like to do now is a, is a lorica, a Celtic lorica, which is a prayer of protection. It's a morning prayer. In Jewish tradition, there's this beautiful morning prayer that many Jews pray each morning. I give thanks unto you, Lord, that in mercy you have restored my soul within me. Endless is your compassion. Great is your faithfulness. I thank you, Lord, for the rest you have given me through the night and for the breath that renews my body and spirit. May I renew my soul with faith in it. Source of all healing, blessed are you, Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, who renews daily the work of creation. So here's a bit of a Celtic riff on something similar. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's eye to look before me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me from all who shall wish me ill afar and near, alone and in a multitude, against every cruel, merciless power that may oppose my body and my soul. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me. Beautiful. Thank you. 
Yeah, you're welcome. So maybe from that point, you might have an instrumental piece or we might have a hymn that we would sing together. And then there, like I said before, there might be a reading from a psalm or something like that. Interesting. As I was listening, I was kind of thrown back to my years in high school when groups of us would go to St. Mark's Episcopal Cathedral at 10 o'clock at night and listen to the Compline service. Many of us would not have called ourselves Christian or had a faith tradition, but there was something about the sung word of God that was reaching us, that had power in it. And so this group of men, uh, monks, I believe, would in the darkness sing words from scripture. And somehow it was reaching us when probably nothing else would. So there's just, I think it speaks to the the power of of music, of sung word in particular. Absolutely. Well, we are talking, uh, of course, in this podcast about creation care day to day. And I would like to know what your relationship to nature is like. I am very fortunate to live in a beautiful place here on Elger Bay, where I look out across the Saratoga Passage across to Whidbey Island. You know, I hate to say it, but often I just take it for granted. Not only the the view, but the silence of the ocean. There's something about being on the sea that I think has an, an amazing impact on on most human beings. And that's something that I get to experience most days of my life. I also grew up on a farm down in Portland. So I'm used to being outside. It's interesting, I, as I thought about this question, as an artist particularly, because I'm not like a scientist. I, I'm not a person who you're going to be asking, well, Jeff, give us some examples of how we can do better creation care, some specific examples. I, I, that's not really my expertise. But as an artist, I can certainly speak about creation in the sense that, well, just the word creation. I view creation as really this huge art project that God has not only created, but he's in the process of continuing to enhance. Matter of fact, I view nature as kind of like a big gallery full of beautiful created pieces of art, all the way from a human being, all the way down to a dandelion, you know, or, or you can go even smaller than that. So there's this, this relationship that I have as an artist, you know, like when I create something, when I make a song, it's interesting to me to think about this because that song is something it's, it's not, it's not, you can't like, you can't hold it. You can't really, it doesn't have any touch aspect, but it's, it exists after I create it. Right. And that's in essence what what the creator did. And so to engage in that as a person, well, just as a human being for one, but particularly as a person of faith who wants their life to be influenced and to also, and to reflect the goodness and the inspiration of the creator, it can actually be a moment by moment process if you want it to be. Unfortunately, life tends to distract us from those things. And particularly when we are not allowed to be, shall we say, in nature to experience it when we're when we're kind of put in a in a more kind of man-made place, it's more difficult even then. And yet, even in those places, even in in a place in the middle of the city, there are obviously, if you look up into the sky, for instance, there are things that are constantly reflecting the glory of God and and the work of God. It's a very complicated thing to think about on one level, and yet on another level, it's very simple. It definitely brings up a lot of 
possibilities in me in terms of directions we could follow. But something that you said at the start really stood out to me. And you said, I'm not a scientist. So, you know, I don't prescribe creation care techniques, etc. And I think that really points to the fact that there are different frameworks that you can approach the created world through. And of course, science is is one of those, and it has its place. But you also see, I think, people approaching the realm of nature, the realm of creation through a kind of a commodity lens where, right. where nature is is something that we can use. Nature is something that exists to, you know, bring us profit or pleasure. And I just think there are lots of different ways you could do that. I, I'm thinking about your framework that you've set up about looking at the created world as a work of art. And I'm wondering, how does that shape the way we we interact then with the world around us if we were to to stand in that framework of of creation as artwork, ongoing artwork? One of the things that I really appreciate about Celtic Christianity, for instance, is this deep sense that everything matters, that everything matters because it's been created by God. And so consequently, there's a a huge difference between chopping a tree down, for instance, so that you can get wood from it, you can build your shelter, you might even get a boat from it as opposed to just chopping a tree down so that you have a better view of the water or something like that. There's a slight difference there, but it's a significant difference because when you have a viewpoint that all of these things matter because God has made them, then you have a greater value for them. And you think twice before you use them for your own uses. You know, the same is true in relationships. Relationships can be wonderful when there is trust and when there is honesty and when there is real deep interaction that comes from both trust and honesty. And and all of those things take time, of course, as opposed to a relationship that's purely transactional. I'll give you something and I'll be nice to you if you be nice to me. And that's actually doesn't take any time at all. That can happen just in a second. We do the same thing often, I think, with the world, with the creation around us as you've already kind of intimated, because of our want of things, we tend to forget the value of what went into making that thing. These days, particularly in recent times, we're starting to see the tremendous mistake of that. We're starting to see the ramifications of having for so long taken for granted nature and just using it transactionally, so to speak, for our own needs without without nurturing it, without valuing it. You've already spoken about one connection that's very clear between your art and the the art of creation, in the sense that you, in some ways, embody the image of God as creator whenever you create, at least in a kind of a subway, a smaller way. I'm wondering if you could talk more about the connection between, between nature and your music. Well, I started from a very young age composing music. And the thing is, I think back on that is I not only expressed myself through my music, not only did that process allow me to express myself through that music, it also allowed me to process myself through that music. Naturally, with that as a background, my music is going to express 
my experiences as a human being and my experiences as a human being always has me in some place in nature. And so consequently, nature is always going to be there, whether it's specifically alluded to or not. As it turns out, I use actually a lot of natural sounds from my travels and experiences in my recordings. I've done that for many, many years. And I guess that means that I really value that. I I see, for instance, the song of a bird equally important as a melody that I come up with. As a matter of fact, I remember very, very vividly, this was years ago, I was leading Sila in a, a small ancient chapel in Austria at a retreat center. And the, the windows were all open and we're right in the middle of the service. And I was just about to start singing something. And all of a sudden, this, this beautiful bird song came through the window and it lasted for about a minute and a half. And everybody understood together what was going on. And when it was over, I basically said, amen, I can't do any better than that. Let's just leave it at that, you know? So, so that's a great example Probably a, that's a very specific example of a creative person like myself kind of stepping back and letting nature take center stage and then in some respects collaborating with nature. I wonder if you have a piece of music that could help us enter into that particular thought a little bit better. Anything that can help us to understand that connection to, to nature? Yeah, well, I've got a piece of music that's called Watching Swallows Pray. I don't know why it is, but I have spent literally hours and hours watching swallows swoop around my backyard and in other places that I've had the delight of being able to see swallows. And at some point, as I watched them years ago, it really became an act of prayer for me as I, as I saw them. So this song was inspired by that idea, and it's called Watching Swallows Pray.
That sent me to a place. Yeah, I love how the flute is, becomes the swallow, really, in that piece. Brian Dunning featured there, a fantastic performance. You know, as I listened to that piece, I was reminded of a lot of the places that I have been and, and that anybody is in. And I've often viewed my life or any life as, well, it can be a life of pilgrimage. You can, you can live your life as a pilgrim or you can live your life as a tourist, so to speak. The Christian Celts had this idea of a holy wandering as opposed to pilgrimage. People like Brendan, for instance, on the Brendan voyage, they, they would go on these, these voyages, these journeys, these journeys of, of wandering, of holy wandering, not just to see things, not just even to experience things, but to, to learn more about themselves. And when we actually have the opportunity and we're willing to take the time to sit in nature and to just pay attention to it, often we are given a perspective of ourselves that we wouldn't normally have. In our conversation thus far, Jeff Johnson has been helping us to see the contemporary relevance of indigenous Celtic Christian sensibilities and encourages us to learn from the values embedded in the ancient stories of Celtic role models like Brendan. If you listen to this podcast regularly, you might have noticed that there's been a similar Celtic theme in the last two episodes. In great part, that's because as Earthkeepers, we're always looking for ways of thinking, being, and doing that help us to better integrate care for the Earth with our faith practice. To that end, we're highlighting a new book that has come out this year authored by one of our recent guests, Ray Simpson. That book is called Brendan's Return Voyage, A New American Dream. In this book, Ray calls attention to some of the more destructive foundations of Western culture, including manifest destiny, empire building, and consumerism. At the same time, he points to the wisdom of indigenous traditions that offer hope for a profoundly reoriented way of being in and with all of creation. Earthkeepers is giving away a few copies of Brendan's Return Voyage, so if you're interested, stay tuned for more information at the end of this episode. For now, let's get back to our conversation with Jeff Johnson. Your words remind me actually of a guest we had on last year. She had a tree in a certain park and she would go and sit on the bench and through all the seasons spent time with that tree. And for her, it was a discipline. It was not something that came naturally because we don't, as people naturally, want to take that time to sit and be still, to sit and and understand, to sit and hear what's being said really through nature. But for her, that was actually a profound transformation in terms of, of her relationship with nature when she allowed herself to do that, when she worked at doing that, at making the time to stop and listen. That idea, that discipline makes complete sense to me. The older I've gotten, the more I do that kind of thing, actually. Aside from just some of the personal benefits of just contemplating and, and, and being silent, there is very much an experience of humility when one really enters in an, into that kind of uh, exercise. The humility comes from just recognizing, again, I go back as an artist, to look, for instance, at a tree and to see its symmetry and its, its colors and its leaves, depending on the time of year. There was a woman that uh, wrote a 
book about nature and her husband had illustrated it and they came on the podcast and talked about that. But he made a really interesting point that just because people don't have the label artist capital A with their names doesn't mean they don't have that creative capability and doesn't mean they ought not to practice it. And so he was encouraging people as one way to encounter creation, encounter nature, was to go draw it and not worry, you know, if your drawing of a horse looked like a stick figure. It's like he said the act of of making something in response to all that's made around you has a power in itself, is a holy act in itself. What do you think about that? I think that's brilliant. I totally agree with it. I mean, particularly when it comes to music today, you know, I grew up in a house where my, both my parents were musicians. They weren't professional musicians. And I went to a fairly large church in Portland, Oregon that had a wonderful music program. So there were lots of opportunities to participate in music. Uh, and, but participation did not assume that you were going to be an expert at it. Participation was just something that you did to add not only add rich, a richness to your life, but just to experience what music is and what music offers for people when they sing together, when they play together. I think we've gotten a lot, we've really gotten away from that in, in music today, you know, with all of these shows that emphasize their competitions, their musical competitions. And so we talk about technique and we talk about more of the visual element of the music and all of these things. And, and of course, all those things are true. And I'm, I wouldn't just do a blanket poo-poo of, of the voice or any of these shows like that. But what they do for kids is that they, they make music, they present music as something that unless you can't be an expert at it, you shouldn't do it. And so consequently, that discourages participation of it. I mean, one of the things that's just been brutal about the COVID times is not being able to sing together, you know, as a congregation or in, as a group, because singing obviously is a, a dangerous way of spreading the coronavirus. And, and that's been very difficult. In the last month or so, I've been able to do a couple of SELA services with uh, some of the relaxing protocols. And it's just been amazing. And it's just wonderful to actually lead people and hear people singing together again. And the same is true, like your friend, the drawing or, or poetry. Poetry is another great example. But we are so worried about making something that isn't great. I mean, mind you, there is nothing like, I, I, you know, I've got a friend, uh, Josef Luptak, who lives in Slovakia. And when you hear Josef play the Bach Suites, I mean, it is, it will transport you. I mean, there is nothing like somebody of Yosef's caliber playing a piece of music like that in a setting that everybody is quiet and, and the sound of the hall is beautiful. That is inspiring. That's music on a particular music. It's, it's really more worship on another level, really. And that's a gift. That's a gift. But at the same time, for a little kid to come along and play uh, something on their recorder or on their piano, something that they've worked on, that they're proud of. That's a whole nother gift, you know, uh, there are different levels. I don't know if levels is the right word, but they're in different spaces, you know, but that kind of goes along with what you're talking about. Absolutely. So you have several times mentioned Celtic Christian thought, Celtic traditions in relation to your, your music. Can you talk to us about where did your interest in Celtic thinking and practice come from? And how has that been shaping your life and maybe even your faith life? Yeah, well, it was on my radar a long, long time ago 
in that every once in a while I would hear Irish music, you know, Celtic music. And I would, I would go, wow, that's, I really like that. There's something about that that I'm really drawn to. And then when I started working with Brian Dunning, who's from Dublin, I kind of found myself right in the middle of it. But as far as the experience of the spiritual side of some of these things, and particularly the Christian spiritual side, early on, I had the opportunity to go to places like Lindisfarne, Holy Island, and Iona. And I started reading a lot. You know, and, and the thing is, is that a lot of the things that you read and about Christian Celtic spirituality, there's a lot of conjecture. There's, there's not a lot of documents, but at the same time, there's some wonderful, there's some wonderful things that have survived. And then there's some wonderful people like uh, David Adam who have written about it. So I've, I've read a lot of that and I've, I've led pilgrimages to Ireland and to Scotland. That has really inspired me to go more deeply into what's really going on here. And what I have found, and interestingly enough, it's, it's brought me kind of full circle back to, I grew up in the church and I grew up in a Baptist church. And I say that because one of the things that my Baptist upbringing gave me was a real love of just the narrative of scripture. And so I'm familiar with scripture. I mean, I'm familiar ex- at least with the text, whether or not I'm familiar with the implications of scripture, that's a life, that's an ongoing, that's an ongoing thing. But what I'm getting at is, I had the opportunity in the last few years to befriend a messianic rabbi who's in his 70s. And one of the great benefits that that has done is it's led me deeply into the writings of the Old Testament, the Tanakh. And what's interesting to me is when you start really reading, for instance, the Psalms, you realize how central the Psalms were to Christian Celtic, Celtic Christianity, I should say. If you take, for instance, this prayer that's attributed to Columba, the path I walk, Christ walks it. May the land which I am in be without sorrow. May the Trinity protect me wherever I stay, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Bright angels walk with me, dear presence in every dealing. May every path before me be smooth. Man, woman, and child welcome me. Amen. Now, that to me sounds a lot like The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake, etc. It's that presence of God that both of these writers are, are reflecting on. What's interesting to me about Celtic Christianity is that they basically take things, they take the Psalms, they take those writings. The Psalms were central to their to their day-to-day lives, but they place them in their own surroundings. And just as the writer in the Old Testament, whether it be David or whoever, he is reflecting on his own surroundings there in Palestine, you've got these beautiful allusions to the ocean, to the mountains. If you've ever been to Scotland or Ireland, it's, it's all there in these prayers, right? What that tells me is you really can transplant all of the Psalms into really any context and any natural context and make them your own prayers in your own surroundings. That is, that is something that's really wonderful to me about Celtic Christianity and, and what they've done. And that's had a great impact on me. Yeah. I think when you read the Psalm um, and you said, the Lord is my shepherd, of course, the image there is sheep and shepherding. And I thought, you know, that is not an image that most people are familiar with. So, you know, I wonder if, if in fact, by contextualizing these prayers, these psalms, we actually encounter them in a new way, maybe a way that's more real to us if we 
take other images that come from the world around us to express those same truths. Yeah, no, I think there's something to be said to go back to your your friend's idea of drawing when they're in nature. And then I kind of riffed on that saying about poetry, writing things like you're saying, writing expressions of faith, psalm-like expressions of faith in your own surroundings. That's a really valuable thing to do, I think. I would imagine that there's a lot of resonance between your your art and your faith and Celtic ways of thinking and being. And as I mentioned at the beginning, your music seems so integrated, so holistic, so connected to the, the earthy reality around us. So no surprise that the Celtic tradition resonates with you because that's really what they're about, as you're pointing out, connectedness to the world around them, not to the sort of artificial separation between the secular and the sacred. So I'm wondering if, if you could show us how perhaps that's reflected in, in your art. Earlier, I talked about Brendan, and I talked about his voyage, some of the extraordinary things that he faced on that voyage, inadvertently, for instance, landing on a whale, but not knowing it was a whale and starting a fire, and, and then the whale started moving. But just wonderful stories like that. But before he even begins, um, there's this desire to to leave. This prayer attributed to Brendan begins this way, shall I abandon, O King of Mysteries, the soft comforts of home? Shall I turn my back on my native land and turn my face toward the sea? My friend Stephen Lawhead has written that the great saints, including Brendan, were, were great travelers as well. In an age when a few men rarely journeyed more than a few miles from hearth and home, they wandered the world often with little more than the cloaks on their backs and the sandals on their feet. For the Celtic saints, each outward journey was also a journey inward. They wandered as pilgrims for the good of their souls, and each new discovery was seen as a discovery of the hidden territory of their own inner hearts. And as I thought about that prayer, and when I was working on this Prayers of St. Brendan album, I came up with this piece of music that I'd like to play. It's called Shall I? And it's the subtitle is The Journey Home. It goes like this.
I, I like that piece because I love that prayer. I love the vulnerability of that prayer. I love how that prayer takes what it's about to do seriously and realizes that there's going to be a cost. I love the sense of place in that prayer. You know, again, when we stand on the edge of the ocean, and in this case, in Brendan's case, he's going to get in what's called a little Kurok, which is this little boat with, I believe it was eight other people. And they're just going to go out and go wherever the current takes them. Sometimes people make that choice in their life to do something like that. But often people feel like they never, they didn't make that choice. And yet they're out on a boat where the current's taking them anywhere. And yet when you enter into the Brendan story, eventually that story ends in the land of promise with a vision of heaven. But the interesting thing is, is that the story doesn't end there. They come back to home, but they have a different idea of home. That's one of the great things that music can do for people. It can take people into places that they normally wouldn't go to. But then because of that experience, it can give them a different perspective of where they actually live. Nature actually affords us that opportunity all the time. I want to actually talk a bit more about that idea of, of the power of music and specifically maybe link it back to the theme of, of our podcast, which is creation care care for the earth. People who listen to this podcast tend to, at some point, want, want practical ideas of what they can actually do. And so if you were to speak to people just in the realm of art, whether it's music or, or what have you, what would you say to them in terms of the capacity of, of creative activity to make any difference at all in earth care? Well, as we talked about earlier, when one takes the time to listen so let's begin with music. If one takes the time to listen to a piece of music all the way through without interrupting it, there's a lot that can be gained by that, from that experience, from that exercise, if it's a good piece of music. And I think the same is true if one takes the time to be in nature. Just to kind of finish this off, here's another prayer that's attributed to Columba. And Columba was an Irishman who ended up introducing Christianity to uh, Scotland from the island of Iona. I love this prayer because uh, there's a great sense of holy wandering and having to trust God in that wandering. But also there's such an awareness of his surroundings in this prayer and specifically various surroundings that have to do with nature. So this is called Columbus Prayer.
been in conversation with musician Jeff Johnson. If you want to know more about Jeff's work, go to arcmusic.com. That's A-R-K music, one word, dot com. You can find additional links to things that we talked about in this episode's show notes, and you'll find those on the Earthkeepers podcast website at www.circlewood.online forward slash earthkeepers. If you're interested in being part of a drawing for a free copy of Ray Simpson's book, Brendan's Return Voyage. All you need to do is go to the Earthkeepers podcast website and use the voice message app to tell us why you listen to the Earthkeepers podcast. The winners of the drawing will be announced in the next podcast episode. Another way to support us is to subscribe to the podcast. Just go to whatever platform you listen to podcasts on and hit the subscribe or follow button for the Earthkeepers podcast. Earthkeepers podcast explores ways in which we can change ourselves our communities, and our cultures to help us to care for the earth in holistic and regenerative ways. Through curated conversations, we highlight the wisdom of thought leaders and change agents who are making a difference and showing us a way forward. When earthkeepers stand together, they amplify the impact of their resistance against environmental injustice and multiply their efforts for renewal and restoration. I am Forrest Dinsley, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amidon. Our producer is Dave Olfers. Forrest Reed is our editor and the creator of our original music. Our research assistant is Rochelle Nordman. And Jessalyn Megerly is our social media director. Thank you, friends, for listening. And please join us next time on the Earthkeepers podcast. Podcast.